A Podcast One production. This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their favourite things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain a genuine insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Kevin Rudd has had a long, distinguished, tumultuous and much-analysed career. His many senior roles, including holding the highest office in the land, on two separate occasions. Kevin is a complex, multi-talented and driven character, whose numerous achievements make him one of the most fascinating public figures of our generation. Kevin, throughout your career, you've had to make shed loads of momentous political decisions. In contrast, how did you find the process of deciding on your choices for Five of My Life? If you ask a question about uh, what you um, like, and that's the question, like, yes. uh, then uh, these things bubble to the top fairly quickly. Well, we're going to start with your film, which you've chosen the 1964 uh, Kubrick classic, uh, Dr. Strangelove, which m- many people say is the finest political satire of the 20th century. Tell me, tell me about the film. Well, that's right. I would include the 21st century so far. Right. <laughs> so uh, becoming more uh, fact than fiction, regrettably. It's... I think it should be laid out as the standard case study for all courses in international relations uh, around the world, including in China, uh, where I spend a lot of my time. Uh, what's so good about it is, uh, not apart from the um, the performance of uh, Peter Sellers, which is right out there. He, he does three roles, doesn't he? he? He does three roles, and each of them is nuts. Um, but he takes personalities, takes them to extreme... Uh, but the final rendition uh, in the, let's call it the deep White House bunker, uh, as Armageddon has contemplated, uh, when finally he sees salvation as being the way in which uh, we can simply live underground for hundreds of years in order to preserve our essential bodily fluids, <laughs> is just so nuts. It's just so nuts. Until you meet people who actually think that way. <laughs> well, and and it, it broke all the rules of comedy because they were taking the piss out of the president, which is then, in 64, you didn't do. And, and the name, do you remember the name? is President Merkin Muffley. I mean, it's, that's President Twat Twat. I mean, they've used a doubler entendre for the president. I mean, it's astonishingly courageous. It is remarkable in 60s America where the presidency was slightly higher than God. Um, or at least it was part of the Trinity, yeah. uh, and therefore uh, causing Americans to conclude that uh, the presidency could be occupied by people who were simple nifnuffs yeah. um, or just simple <laughs> was itself revolutionary. But I think, therefore, and the wonderful value of political satire uh, is to cause uh, people to remove the, um, the, uh, the uh, lensed... Uh, glasses that they are looking at uh, figures of authority through and see them as human beings. Yeah. My, my, my favourite line from that film, one of the all-time comedic lines, is uh, it, it's in the in the the ending that you mentioned. But it's um, uh, gentlemen, you can't fight uh, here. It's the war room. <laughs> the absurdity. You know, we're causing global destruction, but you can't have a fist fight here in the war room. Yeah. 
that's true. I mean, the the whole movie is full of lines like that. For any of your listeners who haven't uh, watched it or it's been a while since they have, go back and look at it. I introduced my sons to it. Ah, uh, how, how did that go down? Oh, terrific, because uh, they've always thought that my taste in cinema bordered on the bazaar, uh, and they thought this was just classic. So, But at a more serious level, the great thing about uh, the movie uh, is that it causes you to conclude uh, how absurdly uh, international conflict can come about. And what worries me a lot as a keen student of US-China relations is when you start ending up in that sort of vortex. And I had things like Strange Love in mind recently when I addressed in the United States, the US Naval Academy on the the emerging China challenge and what to do about it. Of course, it's so easy to end up in this descending cycle and circle of um, an echo chamber of its own internalised logic rather than standing outside of it and saying, are we serious about this, that we want to take out 1.4 billion people uh, or we want to risk the possibility of going to war in the 21st century? And uh, and throw everything down the S bend that we've actually managed to build since forty five since we last killed each other. Yeah. So I think uh, Doctor Strangelove operates at those levels. But I've got to say, my favourite part in the movie is still Slim Pickens, uh, <laughs> right. riding that nuke in, in, into the nu- into the Ruskies. <laughs> and, and I, I mean, I, I rewatched it in your honour. I, d- I didn't realise that it ended as darkly. I mean, the whole. The whole caboodle gets blown up. I mean, everything. The whole caboodle. There is no happy ending. No. Other than for Slim, who uh, (laughs) believes he's doing (laughs) his duty duty for God uh, in a different age, would have been God, King and Empire. And here it was uh, freedom, democracy in the American way. (laughs) Uh, And wearing his, uh, not just a cowboy hat, but the hat of of, uh, one of the the early Fifth Cavalry as they were taken on the engines in the... uh, In the old Western movies we used to watch. It is a stunning movie. So 99% on Rotten Tomatoes. What a classic. Now, we're going to stay in the 60s, um, but we're going to move away from comedy because the book that you chose is Manning Clark's uh, The History of Australia. Uh, and are we talking all six volumes or...? The quality of the volumes uh, obviously changes depending on the reader. But I was always taken in particular by volume five, which right. is entitled And the People Make Laws. And it's essentially tracing the emergence of the Australian Federation from memory, 1885 through to 1915. And the tumultuous events of that time and these uh, far-flung colonies here in the Antipodes as a series of blokes, and regrettably they all were blokes, um, thought, this is dumb, Uh, here we are uh, in imperiled quarters in in the distant seas of the South Pacific, why not get together? And just to deal with the petty factionalisms of the time and people like Deacon uh, able to rise above the ruck uh, and argue the cause for federation. But Manning Clark's description of these principal players, he hops inside the, uh, the soul of Alfred Deacon. He hops inside the body of Henry Parks. And there was a lot to hop into with Henry Parks because he was not a, a small lad and he was a man of commodious appetites. And uh, he's the guy when he was Premier of New South Wales uh, here in Sydney uh, would have uh, literally an escape route uh, for ladies of the night right. uh, to uh, uh, remove themselves from the Premier's office after consulting on matters of state. 
and then also his third great uh, hero slash anti-hero of the book uh, is Henry Lawson. Uh, right. You could not think of three more disparate personalities than Parks, Deacon and Lawson. But uh, Manning Clark's great gift was not to simply produce a turgid series of events, but to approach it through the, frankly, the viscera of uh, human emotion and human reflection and frailty. Uh, yeah, fabulous writer, but, but researching for this, uh, he polarises people. I, I sort of came across some vociferous opponents, and I'm thinking, what's, you know, what's got your goat? Is why, why are people against him, the people that are? Well, Manning Clark would have been regarded as the, uh, and is regarded as the uh, classic centre-left historian of Australian history. Right. And so the likes of Geoffrey Blaney, who uh, carry uh, the banner of what's called the, um, uh, the attack on the black armband of history, that is that we have problems in our past, not just eternal virtues from Cook arriving through noble pioneers onto the beaches of Anzac and everything's been hunky-dory ever since. <laughs> right. uh, Manning, actually, knowing what we're all like as human beings, and remember his father was an Anglican clergyman who was, I think, the chaplain at Long Bay Jail, had seen a seamier side and understood that human beings right. were differently composed. Uh, I think, uh, though uh, Clark would never use the term, um, he would have been a believer in the mission of this thing called Australia. I'm not sure he would have called himself a nationalist or a patriot. Um, and that constructing the Australian nation was a hard business if you were doing so around decent values of equality, of opportunity and democracy. So one of my favourite uh, political quotes, and you're about to tell me it's an urban legend because you probably know this man very well, it is Bill Clinton uh, apparently was asked by a journalist to describe a utopian country. And he described this country that was uh, democratic, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, uh, fair go, inclusive. And when he'd finished this wonderful speech, uh, the journalist said, oh, well, what would you call it, Bill? He said, oh, you don't, needn't invent a name. It's already been named. It's called Australia. <laughs> and I'll go, Bill! But it's probably made up. Do you know if that's true? I don't know, actually. I was uh, with him at a function in New York quite recently. I work now at the Asia Society in New York. And each year we hand out awards called Asian Game Changers. These are people from the various countries of Asia who have really radically altered in a positive direction the politics or the business or the society or the technology of their countries. And Bill was handing out one of the awards. Um, so I was sitting next to him. I didn't realise I was the official representation of Utopia when I <laughs> spoke with him. <laughs> now, is he well? Because he looks terribly thin. I mean... I think uh, Bill has been through what seems to me to be uh, a big vegan phase. My apologies ah. to all vegans who are listening. Right. Um, but I think he's decided to munch a few extra things in the meantime because he looks much better and, frankly, perfectly healthy now. Good. Okay. Compared with the, the Bill uh, that I saw uh, a couple of years ago. So Bill's in good shape. Excellent. Wonderful. Well, on that note, we're going to move, uh, staying with Australia, but we're going to move from the 60s to the 80s to your chosen song, uh, <laughs> which has been viewed by 140 million people uh, on YouTube, which if you type into Google Australia's National Anthem, it comes up third, <laughs> which is I come from a land down under. So, mate, tell me when you first heard that and why you've chosen it. I certainly heard it in the 80s. Um, look, I'm a guy whose essential musical tastes are so nerdish as to be ridiculous. Um, I'm a lover of the classics. 
Uh, I'm not in Paul Keating's category of Mahler right. um, because I think uh, Mahler, apologies, Paul, is much overrated. Um, but I'm a huge fan of uh, everything from, you know, the Renaissance uh, period through the Baroque and through to the early classics. And uh, But essentially my tastes in music kind of die as you head towards the end of the 19th century. So it's uh, stuck in a time warp. Yeah, I'm stuck in a time warp. <laughs> I'm waiting to be liberated from it. And certainly people like uh, Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald introduced to me by Therese, my wife, have helped broaden my musical taste. But as a kid growing up in the 80s, I've got to say this outrageously uh, irreverent song uh, and quite uh, fetching melody kind of captured the imagination of youth. And when you go around the world, and I do a fair bit of that, I live in the States at present, whenever it's uh, struck up, they all know it's us. Do you know, that, that's, that's so interesting you say that, Kevin, because it was number one in, in obviously Australia, New Zealand, uh, UK, America, Switzerland, all over the place, that song is known. But in France, it only ever got to number 55 in the charts. Zut alors. Qu'est-ce qui se passe en France? Why would that be? Why would that be? C'est extraordinaire. Because I don't think it passes the, the test of the French Academy of O. Oh. Culture. <laughs> <laughs> it most definitely doesn't. And, and, and the lyrics are, I, I mean, although on one level they're crass, on another they're actually quite insightful. I think it's, it's the whole, you know, travelling around in a combi, fried out your brains on, you know, wacky backy. Uh, yeah, I'll leave the wacky backy to one side. The uh, But uh, it's kind of the intrepid Australian traveller. I ran into this guy once when I was visiting a refugee camp uh, in uh, Timor-Leste. And, uh, and in fact, it was in West Timor. Uh, it had been a very violent period. And so I was talking to these uh, workers for the uh, United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees. This guy was from Argentina. And so he, uh, so we just got chatting. I think I was a member of parliament at the time. And I said, how the hell did you end up here? He said, well, like we all do. He said, but mind you, you Australians. He said, uh, you're not tourists. You're not travellers. You are voyagers, <laughs> <laughs> describing how we approach uh, our odysseys around the world. Yeah. Besides, much more importantly, it's the only song, I think, uh, in the world which makes explicit reference to a Vegemite sandwich. <laughs> and so, Somewhere there is a marketing manager weeping with joy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one of those simple delights if you're brought up uh, uh, on, uh, on We're Happy Little Vegemites, uh, as I was. Um, so I think for all those reasons of nostalgia, but also a bit of the collective Australian chutzpah about, well, there's a world out there, let's jump in a combi and, and sail across Afghanistan and see what happens. What do you think, mate? Yeah, I love it. I, I've been in the country for uh, 18 years okay. and just adore the place. But recently a, a family... Listen, listen to your accent. You must be from South Africa. <laughs> a, a, a family friend came back with some Marmite from London. Oh, my God. Uh, and an, inf I, an inferior product. It, well, exactly. Well, I grew up with Marmite, <laughs> and, and so I love the bloody stuff. Mm. But now it's muck. I can't eat it. <laughs> <laughs> Thrown it in the bin. I'm, I'm, I'm converted. For those of us who study our beef extracts carefully, there is a qualitative difference between your Marmite and our veg. <laughs> I'm very much in the veg category. <laughs> Now, we're going to leave uh, Australia for your uh, fourth choice, and I'm much looking forward to uh, uh, hearing about that when we return. This is 
is The Five of My Life with Kevin Rudd. So, Kevin, uh, your chosen place is Lake Como in northern Italy at the foothills of the Alps. Tell me about it. Um, it's a big lake. It's uh, the third biggest in Italy. Uh, I, I've, I've spent a very happy two weeks with my wife in Bellagio. Yeah. Gorgeous place. I was first introduced to Bellagio a long time ago. Uh, the Rockefeller Center after... So the Rockefeller Foundation after the Second World War, uh, through good deeds or bad, I'm not quite sure, ended up in possession of this uh, palazzo on top of a hill in Bellagio, which they turned into their international conference centre. So as a junior woodchuck in the Australian Labor Party, there was some uh, international conference for the great and the good and the not so good and the aspiring not so good in my case. (laughs) Uh, So um, off we... um, took the trek to um, Bellagio and I just found it uh, heavenly for Australians who travel if they haven't been there. It is a truly beautiful picture of um, these rich blue-green waters um, at the uh, foothills of mountains which then basically go up and into Switzerland uh, from there. But at the corner uh, of the lake, which is shaped like uh, a triangle, yeah. Um, or the first two sides of a triangle. An upside say. down Y, isn't it really? Thank you, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Geometry was never my <laughs> strong point. The uh, is this town of Bellagio, and at the peak of it is this um, palazzo, uh, which was originally occupied by Pliny the Younger. And so the original um, country retreat for Pliny in first century Rome was to nick up the road to Bellagio. Uh, and uh, and there preside in his uh, his reflections on the world as he wrote the histories and the annals, uh, looking out over this extraordinary lake. But it's seen so much of uh, critical history. On the other side of the lake was where they the partisans finally tracked down Mussolini and shot him at the right. end of the uh, Second World War. So there's something about not just the physical beauty, but it being redolent with... Uh, the country's classical and modern history, which I think stands deeply in the mind. And, and, and do you visit regularly or is it just a memory? I know I've been back a number of times and if I'm ever I'm in Italy, I'll find some excuse to head up that way and, uh, and to stay for a bit and to uh, just to enjoy uh, the water. I was there, in fact, uh, for uh, about 10 days this most recent northern summer uh, finishing my book. I have just finished said tome. Fabulous read. Wonderful. Well, it's kind of you to say so. The um, And it's uh, these things always turn out to be a bit of a labour of love because to be thorough about it, you've got to research the periods and I discover that your memory is good for two-thirds of the time and bad for one-third of the time and you've actually got to go back and read stuff and say, oh, my God, I've conflated four sets of events into one. So it's a, it's a, a labour of love, but it was kind of nice being there to work on final yeah. text. And and do you? I mean, it's a very peaceful place. Is, is do you uh, find when you're writing? I've written a couple of books myself. Is do you find that uh, you get upset all over again, or or joyous all over again, or or you're just you're just a scribe? Because when when I write about I don't know my dad passing whatever else, I, I don't like the process because I'm living it again. Uh, so, do you find it cathartic or upsetting, or both, or neither? I think the honest answer is uh, you are in different zones when you write. 
at the beginning of both books, uh, I did a, an earlier volume last year that covering the period up until when I became yeah. Prime Minister. Not for the faint-hearted. Yeah. yeah, and then there's this one covering the last uh, six years from 07 through to 13. These are pretty tumultuous years. But in both volumes, I've begun with a quote uh, from Hemingway, which is on the business of writing itself, where Hemingway says, um, writing is a simple business. You sit down at a desk, take out your typewriter, and then bleed. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I thought, you, you, I, I read that, and I, I thought you were going to choose Hemingway as your book because you said something, you, you said uh, uh, Hemingway affects you and never leaves you. That's true. And uh, many uh, authors have that effect, you know, from, you know, Dostoevsky and, uh, you know, whether it's Crime and Punishment or Brothers Karamazov or uh, uh, Hemingway and just the extraordinary sort of naked simplicity of um, Old Man in the Sea, etc. But uh, back to the writing process, uh, I find uh, writing usually is in three zones. One is when you're in the zone and you are uh, in a uh, creative sweet spot. Uh, it's a bit like the once or twice in my entire cricketing career I might have hit the ball in the right spot three deliveries in a row only to return to my normal style, which was uh, grasping. So a greater power is working through you and it's all... It's a combination of chi, yin, yang, the cosmos and uh, and everything else. But the second thing... The second zone is, uh, yeah, you're reliving it. Mm. And reliving pain and painful experiences certainly ain't for the faint-hearted. And if you've um, been on the receiving end of a bit, uh, which in my case I have, and, and many others of your listeners in different aspects of their own life, um, it's actually hard mm. and you actually want to be through it and done with it. Yeah. And there's the third zone, which is what I just describe as grinding work, yeah. um, which is researching those three months, pulling together the right sources, reading them, reading the primary documents, talking to the people who are with you at the time, uh, and then um, making sure you put in those mandatory two to three hours a day as you cover that period. Yeah, I, It's all of the above. I, I, wonderful answer, Kevin. Is, are, you a, are you disciplined? When I, when I write, I, I, I absolutely start on time, but then the, the syndrome of wandering into the house in my dressing gown to have some toast even though I've already had breakfast. I, I, I can wander if, if the, uh, the inspiration is not there. But you no, do- I, I never wander. I have the toaster in the study. So that's uh, <laughs> so quite indisciplined. And do you me. always get dressed? <laughs> <laughs> My wife says to me, what are you doing sitting there in your dressing? <laughs> the, uh, yeah, it'll depend on the, the day. I tend to get going uh, first up, but... Um, in my own case, because I'm still a public or semi-public figure, there's always a, a, a litany of, uh, of incomings. Yep. Uh, some of them are exocets which need to be dismantled. Yep. Um, and uh, from usually from uh, Rupert Murdoch's News Limited papers uh, that you've been accused of a new fresh crime against humanity you've never heard of uh, or some other such event. Or, oh, I forgot to put the milk bottles out or whatever the equivalent is in living in Manhattan. So, so on those hatchet jobs, I mean, I, I was getting angry on your behalf reading the book. It is, did you ever think of or ever do calling up some of the people who supposedly were upset that were clearly put up to pretend they were upset and say, you know, person to person, was I really horrible to you? Come on. Or, or do you just sort of let it go, don't water the weeds? It's a bit of the latter. 
But right. it's quite interesting when journalists uh, have actually probed people and said, so when was this guy ever nasty to you? And they said, oh, he's never nasty to me, but I heard that. Right. And so what I find remarkable is that in my parliamentary career, uh, with my as a mem- member of parliament, as a foreign minister, as a prime minister, I'm good friends today with virtually everybody who work with me on staff. Uh, I see them regularly, and these are part of my extended family. So I think what you would know about staff life in politics is that these are the folks who are closest to you. Yeah. I think, uh, but in dealing with officials and ministerial colleagues, uh, I'm I'm still pretty bottom line. If someone's not being rational in their analysis of a problem uh, or going straight for the politics rather than the policy, like most anyone in political life knows what the political implications are of a given, you know, policy idea, it will be either popular or not, okay, or some 50 shades of grey in between. Pardon the reference. But the hard policy of how do we fix the metropolitan uh, transport system of the city of Sydney, that's a fundamental question of public policy and analysis and traffic numbers and public finance and debt sustainability and getting that right. And I would, uh, frankly, uh, not just take all that as uh, a polite exchange. I would simply say... But Fred, whoever it was, that doesn't make sense, mate. Um, we need to tackle it again. I, and I, people are often confronted by that. Well, so, so what, what but thing- my job as the Prime Minister was to make sure that the policy was right, ultimately, for on big stuff, and because we were committing invariably large amounts of public funds to it. Well, one of the things that my friend Andrew, we have a mutual friend from AIF, uh, says about you that he's uh, extremely complimentary is you have a focus on actually getting things done. Uh, and one of my favourite quotes from Churchill is, however brilliant your strategy is, if there are no results, it's useless. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the, to the focus on, we need to sort this shit out. So let's leave out all the other extraneous stuff uh, out of it. And where are the tangible results that we're actually making a good difference? And that does bend some people out of shape. That's true, because uh, a lot of politics is bullshit, to be honest. Um, a lot of people in politics either simply to get ahead in life or because they just love the sound of their own voice and they regard it as Hollywood for ugly people, um, to paraphrase Mark Latham. And, uh, and frankly, I think they're kind of the wrong motives. Uh, it's about how you move the dial uh, in a positive direction for the country and the community and, frankly, for those who need support. Uh, in particular the poor or those who don't have anything approaching equality of opportunity to get on with their lives, or the planet, which can't speak for itself. Um, So that should be the business. What terrified the colleagues, I think, uh, from time to time is I asked for changes to be made in Cabinet submission forms so that when submissions came to Cabinet, uh, I would say, okay, what problem are we seeking to solve here? That's always a good yeah. searching question, or is it just something you came up with in the shower last week? Yeah. An answer to a problem we haven't got. <laughs> and I said, because the great old Australian Labor Party has an enormous capacity to solve problems other people haven't thought exist. Yeah. <laughs> okay, because they exist in our own sort of uh, psychological ecosystem within the centre-left. Yeah. Secondly, why is this the solution to that problem as opposed to others? And thirdly, how much it will cost? But then the killer was, 
and how you measure its success yeah. against what criteria and when will that be reported back to the Cabinet? Uh, there's something for me <laughs> is looking at uh, inputs. Are we going to work very hard or are we going to spend lots of money? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. go, outputs, also not interesting. Or oh, we've produced six billion leaflets or whatever. It's outcomes. I'm interested in the outcomes, not the inputs and the outputs, which moves me on to the choice of your possession, which I think is going to get us into your, um, uh, again, into your career, is uh, you've chosen your battered briefcase. Could you describe it to me? It's battered and brown and it's seen many days of camping. The, uh, and has it been with you since day dot? or Almost. Um, I, um, I got it actually uh, in a bazaar in Tunis. Uh, right. Uh, as you do. And uh, I was in uh, Tunis at the time of the uh, uprising against the authoritarian uh, regime. And so I think my previous uh, briefcase just collapsed on me. Um, my wife would say that I'm a terrible hoarder. I just don't throw stuff out until it literally falls apart. And uh, and that's true. Uh, I confess guilt comprehensively. So I bought this thing. And it wasn't terribly expensive, not terribly flash. But it seems to be one of those great briefcases with an infinite capacity to expand. And <laughs> right. uh, like it can, you can just carry an iPad in it and... Yeah and your banana for the day, if you come from Queensland as I do. Um, or it can be, you know, stacks of books and a bunch of other stuff and, you know, charges and, and it all seems still to fit in. Right. So I regard this as a bit like, you know, the magic wardrobe and the Lion, Witch and the Wardrobe of uh, C.S. Lewis. Uh, it's kind of stuff fits there, which most humans would think would be impossible to stuff into a single briefcase. And is it embossed? Does it or, or no, 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 none of, the, none of that stuff. It's not... It's not posh. I am, at the end of the day, a kid from the country, so we don't, we don't go in for that stuff. <laughs> and has it got a lock on it? No, no, no. 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 Okay. It's, so it's, uh, and so it uh, has attracted some notoriety on the part of staff and people who have worked with me over the years who think it looks really uncouth because it's so battered. But then you have what I'd describe as the German street crowd from London who actually kind of like it because it's so battered. Yeah. Uh, it's not false battering. It's real battered experience from having been kicked around the world so much. It's interesting how you can imbue meaning on an inanimate object. So, and, and, and the monetary value is irrelevant. But you look at it and it reminds you of your wife or, or that time in Tunisia or whatever. So I, I, I love hearing people talk about those things. Yeah, it's a good question to ask because we're human beings uh, and uh, we have a certain spiritual essence and part of that spiritual essence, I think, uh, has meaning attached to it by uh, physical symbols which take us into a different age or a different time. Yeah, whether it's a, you know, a cross or whether it's a, um, uh, a sepia photograph or, or whatever. Now, now you, you're uh, known, your Christianity is, is, is well known, and we share an admiration and love for Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Um, do you mind talking to me a little bit about Dietrich? Because I just think... More people should know about him. Well, he's uh, what I describe as the patron saint of nerds. I was asked uh, after I became leader of the Labour Party in this country who inspired me most in history, which was an interview with Kerry O'Brien. I said, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Good on you. And, Good uh, on you. And Pearl Keza. <laughs> Who's <off>. that? <laughs> you know, did, did, he, did he play for Manly? And... Uh, <laughs> and uh, I said, no, he was a cut above that. <laughs> Sorry to Manly supporters. The, um, uh, 
But Bonhoeffer's extraordinary. I mean, he's uh, grown up in a uh, comfortable bourgeois household in Berlin. In the, in the 20s, his older brother was killed in the Great War. Um, he um, has a uh, passion for academic theology. And so he studies theology at Humboldt University on Unter den Linden in the middle of Berlin. And then, um, and then the war erupts around him, or should I say the rise of the Nazis erupts around him. And if you know anything about the burning of the books, um, when the first um, uh, beginning of the intellectual pogrom by the Nazis in 32-33, the, the book burning is just across uh, the road from Humboldt, uh, mm. where he was by that stage a, a lecturer in systematic theology. But the guy from being an academic and totally nerdy um, is so repulsed by what the Nazis are doing and the capitulation to the Nazis by the established both Catholic and Lutheran churches that he becomes a fully-fledged participant in what became known as the Confessing Church, Dissenting Church, to the point that he establishes or co-establishes their own Bible college uh, up on uh, the Baltic Sea coast up at Finkerwald, I think it is, and then for many years effectively leads a theological resistance. But then the story unfolds. Uh, he then uh, has to um, join uh, the Reich, as every mm. upright man has to. He joins military intelligence, the Abwehr, uh, but then through that position seeks to send communications to his uh, Christian uh, friends in London to communicate with Churchill. These were ultimately um, not accepted as credible reflections of the power of the opposition movement or the resistance against uh, Hitler within Germany. And of course, ultimately, he's implicated in the plot to uh, assassinate Hitler in 1944. Finally, is um, uh, uh, taken to a concentration camp called Flossenburg and they hang him two weeks before the end of the war. Yeah. Uh, a remarkable human being. Just, just the, the courage and, I mean, it, b- before his, the end of his life, which I find deeply moving and upsetting and, but also inspirational, writing about the God of the Gaps and just an amazing figure. So good on you for not choosing a rugby league uh, player. No, the colleagues in the, in the party thought I was nuts for doing that, but then again, many of them still do think I'm nuts. It won't get many votes, Kevin. <laughs> How dare you have some, uh, some actual conviction. So I'm going to ask you two final things. One is a little bit naff, so please excuse me. My usual response is I didn't do either. <laughs> <laughs> I would like you to say for our Chinese listeners, hmm. thank you for listening to the five of my life in Mandarin, mm-hmm. if you wouldn't mind. 感谢我们的华人的观众听众都注意到我们的节目也谈到我生活里面五个重要的东西如何。That uh, is sensational. What he's actually said is Nigel has the face of a goat's backside, but I'm very pleased to hear that Mandarin. And the last thing, I wish it wasn't the last thing, but is is uh, that the question I always ask uh, my guests is, who would you like to hear on Five of My Life next? Uh, Obama or, or Latham <laughs> or Turnbull? That's a really uh, good question. Probably Pope Francis, if you could crack that one. Right. Kevin Rudd, you have been so generous with your time and you've really brought your real self to this uh, conversation so thank you very much and good luck with everything uh, else you uh, are going to do I, I suspect we haven't seen the last of you in very very high uh, national office thank you for having me on the program 
Five of My Life was presented by me, Nigel Marsh, created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Alex Mitchell. Sound production and theme music by Darcy Thompson and Matt Nicholish. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au, download the Podcast One app, or search The Five of My Life on Apple Podcasts.